Welcome to the Negotiation and Conflict Management podcast series. I'm glad I know that now. This series is brought to you by the NAC team. NAC stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management and all related topics. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. We hope you enjoy this episode. I am Laura Reese, your podcast host for today. Our podcast guest today is Dr. Peter Kim, who is a professor of management and organization at the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. Today's episode focuses on the topic of ethical accounting and in particular hypocrisy in individuals' ethical accounting. If you haven't yet listened to part one, you may find it helpful to start there and come back to part two. And I, th- I think you've kind of alluded to my next question, which, you know, theories can sometimes really seem pretty abstract and, and challenging for us to understand how they apply to daily life, you know, unless we have these big scandals or something like this, especially before they're examined and tested empirically. So methodologically then, as a scientist, how do you think we should be studying ethical accounting? Do we need these big scandals? I don't think you necessarily need the big scandals. They're certainly illuminating, and I often use them as inspiration for questions. But I think the main thing is to really from a methodological standpoint, is to really think about this ethical accounting process as an interactive process. A big part of the reason why past explanations haven't really explained this phenomenon adequately is that research on ethics is typically focused either on how people evaluate just their own actions or how people evaluate just the actions of others. So there's really little attention to how people reconcile potential contradictions in these judgments. And that seems particularly important for our understanding of hypocrisy in particular, since people don't like to be hypocrites and people don't want to be seen that way. And it's also important for how we make moral judgments more generally, since moral judgments are fundamentally interpersonal in nature. There's little need to care about ethics, for example, if you are stranded on an island all by yourself. So one of the major things this theory underscores, not just from a theoretical, but also a methodological perspective, is the need to account for both sides of the coin, how people make judgments of both the self as actors and others as observers at the same time. Because the key to understanding ethics uh, when the rubber meets the road is how people manage and ultimately reconcile both types of judgments. As a scientist, I'm curious if we could take a step back and as you were developing the theory, were there any challenges that you faced in creating this theory of ethical accounting? Yes. So both the challenge (laughs) and the exciting opportunity with this theory stem from the fact that the literature on ethics is so scattered. On the one hand, we have these normative philosophical perspectives on ethics, which make very broad claims about how to make moral judgments, but don't do a good job explaining how people actually navigate these issues. And on the other hand, we have countless empirical studies in the field of behavioral ethics that explore how people do behave, but don't really build on one another. There are a bunch of papers that document a wide variety of essentially disconnected effects And they largely talk past one another and are not being integrated into a cohesive whole. So the big challenge we faced when developing the theory was weaving this enormous body of disconnected research together in a sensible way that informed this topic, as well as established a robust foundation that would make it easier for researchers across the entire field of behavioral ethics to see how their work fits. 
but it was also one of the most rewarding parts of this process because I think there's a great value in pursuing this kind of integration, not just in the field of behavioral ethics, but also for the study of organizational behavior more broadly. How did you come up with the idea for the theory initially? And was there something that made developing a new theory particularly compelling to do? It sounds impressive and overwhelming at the same time. <laughs> it started with just a very quick observation and question. The idea came to mind during a research seminar where the speaker we had was presenting one of these behavioral ethics projects that once again focused on just one side of the coin. I don't recall if it was how people evaluate their own actions or how people evaluate the actions of others. But either way, my immediate reaction was to wonder if the same findings would hold if the target of evaluation was different and to wonder why these studies so often failed to explore that possibility. And that's where I think my background with research on both traditional negotiations and identity negotiations made that question so salient. It underscored how much can be learned by moving beyond the individual level to consider the implications and complications that can arise at the interpersonal level. So that's what made this opportunity to take more of an interpersonal perspective on moral judgment so compelling, because I've seen that done in the negotiation literature to such great success. And as I've previously noted, I think there's a lot more we can do with that approach in the ethical domain. Now, you had a, a piece in Academy of Management Review, an editor's piece a few years. This was before the theory of ethical accounting paper came out. And you discussed in that paper three characteristics of any theory about social behavior and the tension among those three characteristics. It's sometimes referred to being like a clock or an even drawn as a clock face. Could you tell us about this clock and how you'd situate this theory of ethical accounting in relation to those three characteristics? Does the theory address all three? So the basic idea is that it's impossible for any theory of social behavior to be simultaneously general, simple, and accurate. And the clock metaphor can make this salient by spacing each of these criteria equally around a clock face to underscore how any explanation that satisfies two of these characteristics is ultimately least able to satisfy the third. One might choose to develop a theory that is simple and accurate, for example. But by pointing a clock hand toward those two goals, that hand winds up pointing away from the third goal of being general. And you can illustrate the same thing with any other combination of two of these characteristics as well. So as for the theory of ethical accounting, that theory ultimately prioritizes the goals of being general and simple with the recognition that it may thus be less accurate. That's why, for example, I'm open to the possibility that this theory may not perfectly capture how people may make moral judgments at the interpersonal level. And it's also why uh, this theory ultimately needs to be tested and elaborated. As I've previously mentioned, there may be additional stages of evaluation this theory has overlooked, and there may be a host of other mechanisms underlying this process that this theory has not considered. We try to be as integrative as possible and as comprehensive as possible, but there's no way we could ensure it captured everything. Uh, but the clock metaphor, also suggests that taking those kinds of steps to capture those additional nuances will ultimately require either making the theory less simple or limiting the theory to situations where additional elaborations won't be necessary and thus making the theory less general. For example, what if the ethical accounting process operates differently in other cultures? If so, that would mean either elaborating the theory to account for how things differ in other parts of the world and thus making it less simple, or bounding the current theory to the U.S. culture and thus making it less general. 
you've given us a lot to think about. And it's a, I think it's an amazing example of noticing something in your own life and just asking a question and really coming up with something valuable from an observation and asking a question. While we have you, I don't want to lose the opportunity to talk about some of your other really vast and amazing research. So I want to take a step even further back. And you've done a lot of work on trust and transgressions and understanding, or in some cases, misunderstanding other people's intentions and even sometimes our own, as I do often, and other related concepts in interpersonal relationships and social perception and misperception. So in, in thinking about your body of work more generally, what is there any finding from your own work that's been most interesting to you? And, and if so, why, why is it so interesting? Well, that's a tough one. It's like, it's a bit like <laughs> everything is interesting. Your children is your favorite. <laughs> Everybody has a favorite. <laughs> so let me try to answer this question in a broader sense, if that's okay. What I found continually fascinating about these issues is how easily our views about ourselves and others can get distorted and often based on relatively trivial details, and how broadly significant the implications mm -hmm. of those misperceptions can be. These distortions can affect how we approach more traditional negotiations, how we work together in groups, how we resolve disputes, the trust we exhibit in one another, as well as a host of other facets of social and organizational life. These implications are also not small. The effects can be substantial and scale in the broadest sense, from one-on-one -on -one relationships to intergroup dynamics, societal challenges, and geopolitical challenges. I find myself constantly intrigued by how these distortions can drive so much of our world and by the practical question of what we can do about it. I couldn't agree more. And in particular, the well-meaning distortions. They're just they're everywhere and, and always and so influential. So I'm curious if there's a particular finding from your work that's really surprised you and why it surprised you. In the most general sense, it's probably the disconnect between how important people say these matters of identity are to their lives, such as knowing who is ethical, competent, and trustworthy, and how easily we get these things wrong. If these considerations are as important to us as we claim, why are we so consistently bad at managing them? And why do we let this play such an important role in how we navigate the world? So I'm constantly surprised by how much we're willing to rely on these perceptions that can be so unreliable. And I think that you've really given us a lot to think about. So I want to ask an even broader question than taking two steps back. To inform your question asking and your research, is there a specific line of research or a study or an article or, or someone's work that's most influenced your work? I would refer to two different papers, if that's okay. The first paper I would mention is titled Identity Negotiation, Where Two Roads Meet. It was published by William Swan in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in 1987. Uh, that paper did a great job contrasting two broad effects of social perception. The first is behavioral confirmation, which we commonly refer to as the self-fulfilling prophecy. It gets to the notion that our views about a target can ultimately lead the target to act in accordance with that view. And the classic example of that is how students can wind up fulfilling the expectations of their teachers. So it's important to ensure that those expectations are high. Swan contrasted that prevailing view with the findings of his own work, which suggests that targets may not necessarily fulfill those expectations and instead reaffirm their self-views, a process which he called self-verification. Uh, he has written, for example, about how abused romantic partners can sometimes stay in those relationships 
and find it difficult to move on to healthier relationships because they see themselves as deserving of abuse and find it uncomfortable when those views aren't supported. Swan then discussed how those two opposing forces would be resolved through what he called an identity negotiation. Perceivers and targets each sought to support their perspectives. This paper is great in the sense it lays the groundwork for considering how people might negotiate their interpersonal views that represents the focus of my own research. But it doesn't really offer much insight into what might affect how that negotiation would get resolved. Instead, the main answer from this identity negotiation perspective at the time when I first encountered this work had simply been that the person who was more confident about their views, either the target or perceiver, would be the one to prevail. That seemed like a reasonable starting point, but it also seemed to overlook a lot of other things that might also play a role. And that's what I've spent so much of my research exploring. The second paper I would mention is titled A Schematic Model of Dispositional Attribution in Interpersonal Perception. It was published by Glenn Reeder and Marilyn Brewer in Psychological Review in 1979. That paper was more specifically focused on how perceivers form views about a target. But it's important because it offers insights about how interpersonal perceptions are formed and might get resolved in ways that go beyond more general arguments about one's level of confidence. That helped me explore ways in which the outcomes of these identity negotiations might depend not simply on the confidence each person has in these views, but also on the types of social inferences we are making. This underscored the notion that we can gain more insight into how identity negotiations are likely to unfold by digging more deeply into how people make and respond to these different kinds of inferences. And that has had a similarly big influence on the research I've conducted. Both of those are really seminal pieces, and I love how they've been impactful in my own life, and I love how they've stood the test of time. But speaking of work that will stand the test of time and things that we should all be reading, you have a book coming out in 2023, as I mentioned earlier. Could we get a sneak preview of what the book is about and and what your goals for the book are? Sure. So the book is called How Trust Works, The Science of How Relationships Are Built broken and repaired. And as the title indicates, the book's focus is on trust. This topic, and specifically the question of how we can repair trust after a violation, has been one of my main areas of research focus. In fact, far more so than the study of ethics and morality, which I only plunged into a few years ago. My interest in moral judgments, which has been the focus of our podcast today, is really just a downstream consequence of my broader interest in trust. And that's because two of the major determinants of trust are the perception of competence and integrity, with integrity being the perception that others adhere to principles one finds acceptable. So essentially, whether they are good, decent people and have good moral standing. If I were to ask you how important trust is in your life, I have no doubt you would say it is vital. But time and time again, the research I've been conducting has shown that we make those judgments quite poorly. Even simple differences in wording can make a dramatic difference in the trust we exhibit in others, even when every other objective feature of the situation is the same and the person is the same. So understanding how we can better manage trust in society seems especially important today, given how virtually every measure of trust in the world has found it in serious decline. That includes our trust in one another, trust in government, trust in business, and other institutions. 
So the goal for the book is to address this need by drawing on and integrating the over two decades of research I've conducted on this topic, as well as the research of other social scientists to give readers a better understanding of how trust develops, how it's damaged, and what it means to repair it. And to do that, the book takes readers on a journey that covers some of the most striking, well-known, and tragic trust violations that have occurred in modern times. It gets to some very salacious and interesting and horrifying examples with the goal of providing readers a better sense of how to navigate these issues. But that's just a preview. I'd be happy to chat with you further about the book in the future if your audience would have an interest. I think we would love it. I certainly look forward to reading it. And after that description of salacious uh, and et cetera, how could, I, <laughs> how could I not be looking forward to it? Wonderful. What we learned today from our podcast guest, Dr. Peter Kim, is that we need to expand beyond how people make moral judgments at the individual level to think about the complications that can arise at the interpersonal level by considering how the judgments people make about themselves and others committing the exact same act can differ, even when they are trying to be fair and consistent. It's such an important lesson for all of us to remember. Dr. Kim's work underscores how, until we do that, though, our understanding of how to maintain our moral standing in society will remain far from complete. As our series name states, I'm glad I know that now. Once more, I'm Laura Reese, and on behalf of all of us, we thank our guest, Dr. Peter Kim from the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. On behalf of our NAC team, Deborah Tsai, Michael Gross, Jennifer Parlamis, Laura Reese, and Ming Hong Tsai, thank you for listening. For more information about this and every episode, you can check out the podcast notes on the NAC website. There you can find additional sources and links to material cited in each episode. Please tell a friend about our podcast, and we hope you will join us next time for another fascinating discussion about a topic you'll be glad to know about.